I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 35 from the New International Version. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Like all good Free Methodists, I sit in a regular place in the church. <clears throat> One Sunday we tried to sit over here and people said, go back where you belong. <clears throat> Actually, that's not so. Not only has this church been the place where I had a job for 28 years, but it has become my and our church family, and we appreciate that. Several years ago, I went with a mission team to Thailand. My wife and I were with that group, and some of you were there also. Our job was to help Thai English teachers teach English. But of course, we were on a Christian mission also in strongly Buddhist Thailand. Kevin Austin, the free Methodist missionary in Thailand at that point in time, had experienced success using Christian art as a way of opening up conversation regarding the Christmas story. Uh, Kevin had a piece of art depicting the Christmas story. And he told these Thai teachers, this is an important part of English-speaking culture. You need to understand this. And the Thai English teachers were fascinated with that piece of Christmas art. It looked like they had not gone beyond the Christmas images of Santa Claus, reindeer, giving gifts at Christmas. And I will never forget one young Thai woman asking this. She said, are there more stories about Jesus? And we said, oh yes, oh yes. 
And that was a green light for us to talk more about Jesus to these culturally Buddhist Thai teachers. Christmas is a wonderful story. Wonderful story of a manger, a mother, other parts of the story. And Advent beginning this Sunday is a time of preparing, a time of preparing to retell and celebrate the story of that wonderful time. Key stories shape our lives. They help us understand a little bit more who we are and what life is all about. Behind the manger and the mother and the newborn baby, there is a framing story. But for some people, that story is one of trying to, trying to seek God, with some people trying to appease God. But the truth is, the framing story behind Christmas is about a God who comes to us, a God who seeks us out, a God who comes to us. Did you hear of the three-year-old watching TV with her mom? A news clip comes on about a famous person who has died, and little Emily's reaction is, is, is he going to heaven? Her mom explains that he would go to heaven if, if he asked Jesus to come into his heart. And Emily said, you know what, Mom, I talked to Jesus on the phone the other day, and I asked him to come into my heart. And Mom said, that's great, but how did you know his number? And the little girl responded simply yet profoundly. She said, he called me. He called me. God calls us. God comes to us. 600 years before manger, mother, and newborn, God's people were involved in a wrenching story. They had been defeated. They had been taken captive by their enemies. For 70 years, most residents of Judah had to live in a far-off place, a land that we now know as Iraq. We call this the Babylonian exile. It was like wilderness, like a desert. It was a terribly wrenching experience. But the story moves from exile to return from exile. And we hear, the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. That is Isaiah's great vision in chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. God comes to people in deep distress, even distresses of their own making, God comes to us. And God comes into our human condition with God's own love and God's restoration. That is the story not only of the Babylonian exile, but also the story behind the first Christmas story. Hebrew people at the time of Jesus' birth were not in captivity, but they were ruled over by a foreign overlord, by a foreign power. Rome dominated the land of Jesus' birth. Rome forced payment of taxes to this foreign power. A Roman governor, Roman soldiers kept order by military force. How would we like it if we were under the domination of, you know, say, China or Russia? Anger, resentment, rebellion seethed in Galilee and in Judea. And Hebrew people looked for a deliverer, a Messiah who would make things right. And they heard from Isaiah, here is your God. He will come and save you. God will come. God will come to you. What people of Jesus' day did not expect, that God would come and save them by becoming one of them. You see, people expected a conquering general, 
a new David, a ruler, a great king, but instead God came as a human baby. Can you imagine that? This newborn in the manger <coughs> becomes a grown man, a carpenter like his father Joseph, and so we assume, then a traveling teacher for a few years, but always a human being. Someone has tried to picture Jesus in the carpenter shop trying to figure out how to straighten a bent nail. How do you think Jesus dealt with this? Did he call upon the Holy Spirit to do a miracle and fix that nail? No, I don't think so. Jesus surely straightened it himself. After all, that's what good human carpenters do. By the way, I was crossing the U.S.-Canada border several years ago after attending a pastor's conference in Vancouver, B.C. And uh, the person at the border doing his job was trying to find out, you know, wh what were you up there in B.C. for? What kind of, what kind of uh, conference was this? And I said it was a religious conference. And without pausing, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, well, was he a good carpenter? You know, that was the most profound question I've ever been asked while crossing the border. <laughs> Eugene Peterson writes, the entire meaning of the incarnation is that God enters our human condition, embraces it, comes to where we are to save us. God comes to us. God comes to us by becoming one of us in Jesus. This morning, out of the powerful Isaiah passage that was read, I hope we will carry away at least three things about God's coming to us. <clears throat> First of all, God has not and will not abandon us. Behind the story of the mother and the manger and the newborn is God's eternal love affair with the humans God has created. God chose a family. It was the family of Abraham and his descendants, but some of the descendants forgot God. They turned to the worship of idols. And there were consequences for forgetting God and consequences for turning away from God. But there were dark places in which God's people found themselves. But God did not abandon them. God did not abandon them. To people enslaved in Egypt, God sent Moses, a deliverer. Centuries later, to people in, in, in Babylonian exile, God brought return from exile, restoration to their land, to people under the harsh tyranny of Rome. God sent Messiah in the form of a baby. To people today in bondage, sometimes to ourselves, God sends Jesus. God has not and God will not abandon us. In Isaiah 40, the prophet speaks for God to the people. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do you think and act as if God has abandoned you? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He gives power to the faint and he gives strength to the powerless. Even youths will faint, be weary. The young will fall exalted exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. God has not and God will not abandon us. In a book even darker than anything in Isaiah, Jeremiah speaks for God. And Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Remember Jesus of Nazareth saying, remember, I am always with you. I am always with you even to the end of the age. <coughs> Maybe some of this, some people in this room feel abandoned by God. There are circumstances of life that sometimes feel as if God has abandoned us. But the framing story of Advent is that no, God has not and God will not abandon us. God comes into the mess that we may have made of our lives. God comes into the darkness and aloneness and sickness and weakness. God comes to us when we are confused and don't know what to do about it. God comes to us. A first church family years ago was going through intense medical issues with children. Mom sent an email to the family support group and she gave me permission to share some of what she wrote in it. Physically and emotionally, I was a wet noodle after all this, she said. Last night as I was praying and grieving, I opened my Bible to continue my reading in John, but my Bible flipped open to Isaiah instead. I started at Isaiah 40, verse 1, and God spoke words of hope to my heart. I was especially comforted when I read the message version. Don't panic. I'm with you. There's no need to fear. I am your God. I'll give you strength. I will help you. I will hold you steady. I will keep a firm grip on you. And the mom continued, wow, isn't God amazing? In fact, God has become one of us in Jesus, in our frailty, our weakness, even in our illness. Here's the second thing I want us to hear. God's coming to us ushers in wholeness and holiness. Isaiah 35 pictures rivers flowing, flowers blooming in the desert. Waters shall spring forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Isaiah pictures human weakness and human illness made whole. The eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Weak hands will be strengthened. Feeble knees will be made firm. Anybody want a little share of that feeble knees business? <laughs> Boy, that sounds like a good thing. People living in fear are told, be strong. Here is your God. He will come and save you. What Isaiah may have caught a glimpse of but did not really understand clearly is that this saving healing would come through a baby. Isaiah 9 pictures a child born to us, a son given to us. But it was not until hundreds of years later that sleepy shepherds outside Bethlehem heard the angel's voice. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You will find a child, a baby, wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Imagine health and holiness and salvation coming through the birth of a baby. How can this be? By the way, sometimes I've said to mothers about to have their first baby, I have said, this will change your life forever. And it does. Roaring Camp was a wild, rough California mining community. It's in a short story called The Luck of Roaring Camp. There was only young, uh, one, one woman in Roaring Camp. Her name was Cherokee Sal. 
and she died while giving birth to a baby. The men of Roaring Camp decided they ought to care for the baby. So they got an old box, stuffed rags in it, put the baby in the box. Someone decided the rough box wasn't really suitable, so he traveled 80 miles to get a rosewood cradle for the baby. But then the rags around the baby looked out of place, you know. Someone traveled to Sacramento for silk and lace blankets. But when these rough men bent over the lovely cradle, they noticed the floor was horribly dirty. So hardened men got down on hands and knees and scrubbed the floor clean, and you know what that did to the walls and the windows. And the ceiling, they had to be washed, curtains hung. The men of Roaring Camp found that they had to give up fighting because babies don't sleep through a brawl. They took the baby out to the entrance to the mine, which they had decorated with planted flowers. But then the men of Roaring Camp noted that against the soft skin of the baby, their hands were dirty. So the camp store sold out of soap and shaving lotion and perfume. The baby had changed everything in Roaring Camp. A child is born for us, a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And as we open ourselves up to the influence of this Jesus, born as a baby, we are transformed, we are healed, we are made holy. In the Isaiah 35 picture, the highway on which God's people walk as they respond to God's coming to them is a holy way, a highway of holiness. It's a way of living which fosters wholeness and holiness. You see, holiness is not just a checking off of a list of rules that we have kept and believe we should keep. Holiness is not just trying harder to be good. Holiness is not just a doctrine free Methodists and others like us say we believe. Holiness is a life-giving, life-transforming connection with Jesus who came to earth on the first Christmas. Holiness is relationship with this Jesus. I hope that's how you understand holiness. More than anything else, a modern-day Mary wanted a certain kind of vacuum cleaner for Christmas. She'd seen the model demonstrated. She was excited about its power, ease of use, so the family decided that they would, they would just get it for her. Mary decided to take her new appliance for a test drive across the living room floor, and the vacuum purred quietly. This thing really worked. But suddenly the vacuum cleaner stopped. She flipped the switch a few times, started up again, but it only worked for a few minutes. The, the machine started up, shut down, started up, shut down, and she began to think, what kind of defective vacuum cleaner did they get me? And her husband was no help. The husbands usually aren't. Um, he couldn't figure it out. He decided that they would just take it back, exchange it. He went to unplug it, and that's when he solved the problem. In her excitement and haste, his wife had plugged the vacuum cleaner cord into the Christmas tree blinker outlet. <laughs> vacuum cleaners don't work well that way. They need a steady supply of current, and so do we. God's coming to us ushers in holiness and wholeness because God's coming offers a new way of being in relationship with God through Jesus. We need to walk in the holy way. We need to stay connected to the power source. 
So God has not and God will not abandon us. God's coming ushers in wholeness and holiness. And finally, God's coming is cause for great joy. Listen again to Isaiah. The ransom to the Lord shall return <clears throat> and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And what did the angel messengers say to those sleepy shepherds outside of Bethlehem? I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. God's coming is cause for great joy. But sometimes the things that we add to this season of the year can rob us or threaten that joy. It's a little bit like a wedding, you know. Um, the marriage of a man and a woman is cause for joy. But you know what you have to do to get there is sometimes a threat to the joy. Uh, God's coming is cause for joy, so let nothing in the, this season, not even parties and shopping, decorating and programs, not even church programs, not, don't let any of them rob us of our joy. By the way, have you heard how you know Christmas is almost here when there are more pine needles on your carpet than on your tree? And when your credit card is smoked along with the turkey and the ham? And when it's a wonderful life has been shown for the 13th time? And when we're pulling an all-nighter because of the words, some assembly required? Oh, how I found those words pierced me with fear. At an adult class Christmas party I attended several years ago, folks were telling about memorable Christmases. And they shared, someone shared about a make-do Christmas tree, a straggly thing that they leaned against the wall. And I piped up and said, all our Christmas trees lean against the wall. In fact, I'm happy to admit my wife and I now have a beautiful, beautiful artificial tree which does not lean. God's coming to us is cause for joy even if some things we add to the celebration threaten that joy. Let the Advent season be a time of focusing on what this Christmas, this season is really all about. A grandpa visited his daughter and her two-year-old son. Little boy is crying after being put to bed. Grandpa walks in, picks him up. But dad, mom says, we're trying to break him of that. Please just let him cry. So happened again, same thing. Third time when the little guy's crying stopped, mom goes storming into the bedroom, really steamed at grandpa. Only this time she finds that instead of picking the little boy up, the older man has crawled into bed with him. In Jesus, God comes. God comes to our places of loneliness and fear and tears to bring wholeness and joy, and that's the Advent story. <clears throat> but this Advent season, let's make sure we get the real heart of the story. Sometimes we miss the heart of the story. It's like what happened on December 17, 1903. Orville and Wilbur Wright made their first airplane flight on their fifth attempt, the plane achieved a 12-second flight. Can you believe it? And Wilbur rushed to the telegraph office and he sent this. He said, we have flown for 12 seconds. We'll be home for Christmas. Upon receiving the telegram, sister Catherine went to the newspaper, told the editor of the brother's new flying machine, <clears throat> and informed him that they would be home for Christmas if he wanted to have an interview. 
So he told her that's nice, and he would be sure to put something in the paper. On December 19th, the local paper placed this headline on the sixth page of the paper, Wright Brothers Home for Christmas. It was the most important story of the year. It was the first ever airplane flight, but the editor missed the reason, the heart of the story, missed what it was all about. Has that ever happened to us? Our story is about a God who descended to the manger to the place where cattle eat. Who, who expects to see God in a place like that? Who expects to see God in the mess our world is in? And our world is in a mess, isn't it? But if God has descended to the manger, and if God has moved into our neighborhood, then we never can tell where we might encounter God. You never can tell where God will show up. We can encounter God in places of difficulty and darkness. We can encounter God when we don't know what to do. We can encounter God in the midst of grief and loss. We can encounter God in the midst of this time of turmoil in our society and in our world. The question is, will we open our hearts to God's coming? Will we prepare to celebrate God's coming during this Advent season? Will we watch for God coming to us in this season of the year? I'm going to take just a little break here because uh, I just can't not say something about Judy Terry being here in church. Isn't that exciting? Where is Judy? Where is Judy? There you are. Judy, we are so glad you're here. God, God came to you as you struggled with your cancer and its treatment for the last year, and you did not give up, how thankful we are to have you here. Let's pray.